Greetings. Welcome to the M-Word Podcast. Brought to you by Martin. That's me and Matt. That's him virtually over there. Hi, Matt. Martin. On Zoom again. Yes. I'm very kindly joined by Steve today. Steve, thanks for sparing us a little bit of time. No problem. Nice to be with you. Thank I'm you. I'm so sad I'm not with you, but anyway, I'm here in Cambridgeshire. Well, hopefully, well, I'm sure one day we'll all get back to what, whatever normal really is in our lives. Hmm. So, got low, absolutely loads to cover. So, maybe just to st- obviously the career. Well, certainly from an outside perspective, the career started in bikes. What, what age did was that an interest? And was that a family interest or just something you? No, just- um, not not at all. Uh, I don't know where the interest came from. To be honest, I like speed. I like going fast. I like scaring the shit out of myself <laughs> and uh, everybody that got near me. Um, and I lived uh, not far from where I am now, near Cambridge. Not far from Cambridge. And there was a disused airfield there. And so my passion was getting anything that went along at any speed, whether it be a car, motorbike, tractor, anything that I could make go fast. Um, I used to just tear around. And so it's kind of like speed, I guess you could say, to a certain extent. And motorcycles happened because they were often cheaper to buy than cars. So for five or ten quid, you could find an old clapped out BSA or James or Royal Enfield or something from laying in someone's shed and buy it for five quid and tear around for about three days and then it would blow up and you go and buy another one and that was really yeah. sort of what happened. I think you start to self teach to to try and fix them when you could and that was again just self education of I broke it what can I do to fix it or make it go yeah. faster. Yeah, absolutely, and and that is where possibly my mechanical knowledge came from. Was just met, taking things apart and trying to put them back together again, and finding someone that could. Um, and I just really didn't like school, um, yeah. and basically got expelled from my primary school at the age of ten. Then I got expelled <laughs> from my senior school at the age of fifteen. Um, and uh, at the age of 12, my dad died, so that wasn't really much fun. Um, so my mum sent me off to do a, an apprenticeship when I was 15 years old, and so oh, I became a tractor mechanic. Mm. And what was the, 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 the I used the word acting out of school, whatever, was that just not an interest, just didn't engage you at that age? Yeah, couldn't, couldn't engage with it, didn't really know what it was going to do for me. I've, I've worked it out now what it would have done for me, and <laughs> regret not having done it, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just couldn't kind of piece it together, really, doing algebra and all these kind of things. But, yeah, I really do uh, look back on it and think, yeah, I should have tried a bit harder and I would have been – my life would have been easier had I have had a slightly more education as far as writing and reading and um, everything else that goes with it. So all, everything that I taught and learned really was self-taught, I guess you'd say. Yeah. But one of the reasons I didn't like school was because if I skived off, I could go back and ride my motorbike or drive right. or do anything else. And I literally did used to do that. It's, it's dreadful. I'd go to school on the on a school bus or a train to Cambridge, and by 10 o'clock I was hitchhiking home to get on my motorbike. So, oh, right. um, and got away with it because I guess because my dad wasn't around, I could steam open my school reports and change the dates on them that I was at school and all the silly things that you would do and could do back then before computers got involved, I guess. Mm. And that, I know, obviously, fair, you know, part of the, 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 the Steve that's known now and it's a practical joke, was that part of the thing at, at school? Or, and if it was, do you think that was part of trying to uh, you cover know, over the disengagement in school? Yeah, it's really weird because, yeah, you're right, actually, the practical jokes and probably having the fun and being a bit of a comedian, I guess you'd say, was because... Um, and now I look back on it, and everyone talks about bullying, but I think to a certain extent I was bullied a bit. I was a bit tubby, actually. In fact, I was quite quite fat when I was at school. 
Uh, hence, I've got a nickname of Jumbo. Hence, I've got an elephant on the back of my crash helmet. Oh, okay. My whole racing career. Um, and I think uh, I probably was bullied a little bit, but if I made people laugh, I didn't get bullied so much to yeah, a certain extent. Okay. I think it's a mechanism. Yeah, I think it was a mechanism that kicked in to a certain extent. And uh, then riding my motorbikes to drive my cars and things like that was another escapism. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Probably I've enjoyed making people laugh, which I've done on certain occasions. I've upset lots of people, I'm sure, and I apologize for that, for <laughs> my daft practical jokes. But my life has revolved around going fast and laughing and giggling and doing daft things, I guess you could say. And there's, a, again, an element of that that, probably has restricted my career a little bit but boy i've had lots of fun doing it and look yeah. back on it with fun fun memories just as important isn't it to have fun along the way for sure mm. I'm, I'm interested in that because again i think about my youth and speed and while i raced push bikes and stuff it was, it was never what i suppose wired in me that you know i got a car never thought of going fast in it i think that's just some people have wiring for that and some people don't that that thrill yeah i think that's possibly the case um, and, it, and it gets inbred in you fairly early on because, you know, me going sort of a, an average speed, everyone thought it was fast, and me going fast, everyone thought it was some sort of nutcase lunatic. Um, and I think I just had speed inbuilt into me. But it didn't have to just be speed. I know it sounds daft, but I've kind of always, my whole life, I've liked scaring myself. Um, and some people hate being scared, but I like it because I like getting away with scaring myself and I get a buzz afterwards. And, and it's talked about a lot and everyone says, oh, it's a drug. It's a, you know, it's an adrenaline fix and this, that and the other. And yeah, I've had that. And I've hurt, I've hurt myself a lot doing it, but, um, even that, even when I'm hurt, I sort of laugh and think, oh, well, I'll get better and go back and, and do it again. And I sort of have. And the reason I don't do it anymore now, I'm just too old. My body won't take it anymore now. I still go out and ride classic bikes and things, but not at the pace I used to. And I still get a buzz from that. And so you'd be a roller coaster. I call you a roller coaster. You'd be searching for roller coasters to go on. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just... Um, <laughs> Yeah, kind of ridiculous, really. And the, all the people around me just think I'm still a bit bit loopy, really, in some of the things I do. And I like flying aeroplanes. I like driving cars fast. I like riding motorbikes fast. Um, and it's very difficult to get out of your system. And I feel very sorry for people uh, that are coming to the end of their careers. And that's probably not just motorcycling. It could be car racing, it could be football, it could be tennis, it could be golf. It's very difficult when you come to the end of your career where you've You've had the adulation and the success, possibly the money uh, and all the things, and then all of a sudden it's taken away from you. And I guess we've got Cal Crutchlow who lives on the Isle of Man or sort of spends a bit of time there. He's going to go through that. I know he is. He's going to do testing and things like that. But it, it's really weird, and, and I understand why some people go off the rails a bit when they stop doing it because they've done something that started out as a hobby. They've made a living out of it. Um, of any sport and it's probably the greatest thing you can ever do and then all of a sudden you can't and it's difficult yeah I think we tried with a, uh, we mentioned this on a couple of podcasts because a couple of people have said the same one of our early podcasts we chatted to, to a, a lad that's on the Isle of Man now that was an all black and he yeah. spent his whole career getting to that stage got you know got the jersey played for the all blacks and when that uh, and he was fairly high profile because he was dating someone fairly high profile so again mm. very media orientated as well and then, then it ended and it was just lost. There's no, no kind of thought what, what happens the next day. So, yeah, it must be really hard to deal with. Uh, it is. And, and, you know, I mean, I've been 
kind of lucky or a plan probably a little bit. Um, and we've all heard the old adage, when one door shuts, another one opens. But the answer is to have short corridors because you don't want to sit there. Yeah. In that corridor for too long, and I've been fortunate that after I stopped racing in 1986, uh, I knew I was going to run a team, which I did through to 1991, and then I started doing a bit of commentary work, and then truck racing came along, and that went on to 2001, and then the BBC gig came along doing MotoGP, and uh, yeah, so... I've been very, very fortunate, but I can fully understand if I'd have stopped in 1986 with nothing to do, I'd have gone a bit loopy, really, because I didn't really have a trade and interest in things. Um, so I, I had friends that oh, bought a motorcycle shop. You know, it's a nightmare. And that lasts for a couple of years, and then you might buy a pub or you might do this, and you've got some money. But it doesn't fulfill what you've been used to doing. So I, I really do understand, and I know lots of other sports. I don't think we have it in motorcycling, but they do have – kind of um, places you can go and talk about things uh, and it's becoming more and more a, a psychological issue I guess with people and and I think it's something that we should consider. I think certainly the certainly profiles I guess with some sports where there's more money and I would football they have that yeah there's a facility where they help you transition from hmm. Yeah, making money of the adulation and to, you know, Joe Bloggs on the street, really. So, yeah. Because, you, you know, you're told and you want to 100% focus. Uh, you've got to focus on it. So it's very difficult to feather your bed in other areas, isn't it? That's that's the thing, you know. And yeah. and so I did a little bit. It's probably why I didn't win so much racing my bikes. I mean, I did okay, but I was I never got to be a world champion. And, and I think arguably I probably was – a little bit diluted in that I kind of knew that when that came to an end, I wanted to do other things. So uh, it, it's very, very difficult. And, and if you become a multi-world chairman, it's great because you, you've done okay and you can survive on that. But if you're kind of three quarters away there, they're the people that get hurt. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So to look back there, you mentioned your mum then, once you get kicked out, out of well, middle school or high school, you then went off to, to be doing apprenticeship. Hmm. Yeah, and that that really was what I was doing. But whilst doing an apprenticeship, I wanted to go fast, and and so I, I got with a group of friends. Um, sounds ridiculous. It was a pub uh, near Cambridge, and we all used to hang about. And I'd be on my flipping Triumph Tiger Hundred or something, and someone else be on a BSA Spitfire or Triumph Bonnevilles or whatever you whatever you could afford. And and we decided that it'd be let's have a team, let's have a race team. Um, because there was uh, Snetterton wasn't that far away. And we had, luckily, within that group of friends, we had a guy that used to mend lawnmowers who was quite a good mechanic and had quite a lot of money. There was a fellow that was a paint sprayer. There was someone that was an engineer at a machining shop. And so we all got together and built an old motorbike. And I was the daftest idiot on the roads and the fastest bloke, so I was elected to be the rider and someone else was going to paint the fairings and someone would machine the pistons and this. And that's exactly what we do. Started up a bit of a club race and off we all went in a Bedford Dormerville to Snetterton that had got rusted out springs and chassis and steering was all wonky. Uh, um, and that was really what it was about. It was just some fun. Went off to Snetterton and then we decided that Snetterton went okay and we went to Cadwell Park and went a bit further. And then the van broke down going to Brands Hatch and we didn't make it. And it was just a giggle. It was like having a darts team, but on tour. Um, yeah. And it, all of a sudden, I started doing better. This um, lawnmower mechanic mate of mine bought a, a Triumph uh, Triton and it was not a bad bike that someone else had raced. And I started getting on the podium at these club races. And then I bought a Yamaha because that's what you needed and started winning the odd national race and just went from there, just serendipity. 
And with them, so say each time you get in there, was was that a thought in your mind that hang on, I'm I'm pretty good and I can see something forming here, or is he still just as you said, just mocking about, or is there that point where you thought, yeah, um, I can beat the other guys here? Uh, yeah, good point. I mean, right up until 1975, um, I just thought it was a bit of fun and it was, it, I mean, we'd all get, we'd drink too much on the Saturday night and, and hang out, sleep in the back of the van with condensation dripping on you and every, everyone's done it. I'm not saying it was anything great. Uh, and it was just some fun, but uh, I got some sponsorship then and a lovely gentleman called Harold Coppock bought me a couple of Yamahas. And so then I really felt, wow, I'm, I'm actually not spending my money. Someone else is spending their money. And that all of a sudden started feeling quite good. And then another sponsor came along, a guy called Dave Moore from Guildford and bought me a bigger bike, a 500 and a 750, because that was, no one really looked at the smaller 250, 350 classes. If you wanted to be Barry Sheen, you had to be on a 500 or a 750. And I think it was that point in probably 19, end of 75, 76, all of a sudden, there was not only was I not paying for things, someone, were pay, someone was paying me. I got prize money and start money. And, and it was at that point that I packed up my apprenticeship. I, I failed finishing it. It was a five-year apprenticeship. And after four years, I quit it, like most <laughs> that do, do, that was uh, in, trying to teach me. Um, and I, all of a sudden, yeah, I did. I, I actually got to meet Barry Sheen, who was my hero, and I got to meet Phil Reed and all these superstars and people like that. And so all of a sudden, the seed was sown that maybe maybe I could make a career out of it. And, and yeah, I, I sort of did. And then I jump on one more year. Then the next thing that is more than ridiculous, I get a phone call from a guy called Morris Knight from Suzuki, Great Britain, offering me a ride and to be the teammate to Barry Sheen, which was just ludicrous, ridiculous. It took me about three nanoseconds without even asking how much they're going to pay me to, to accept it. So, yeah, it was such a... How did that come about? I just, the previous year, I obviously had results to be on someone's radar. Uh, how did that come about? It, uh, tell you how it came about. In, in 1976, uh, this guy, um, builder from Guildford, bought me an RG500, which was the ultimate bike. Not many people got them, but because I'd won uh, a thing called the Grovewood Award, which was for the brightest young prospect uh, racing in the UK, and it was sort of fairly prestigious uh, award that was presented by um, all the circuits, all Brands Hatch and everything else. So that sort of put me on the radar. But I'd also in seventy five, uh, sorry seventy six, won the British Championship. I won the British Open Championship on this private Suzuki, sponsored by my builder friend. Uh, but most importantly, uh, at the time in nineteen seventy six, Barry Sheen was had teammates of John Newbold and John Williams. They were two, the two, there were three riders in the team. Barry was the head the kind of top man, obviously, because he won the world championship. But in the British races, I was beating his teammates. So Barry sort of put a word in really, because we got to know each other fairly well and he lived quite closely yeah. where I am. And he put a word in. He says, this bloke, Steve Parrish, who was five, three or four years younger than Barry, He's beating uh, John Williams, John Newbold in the 500 races and have a look at him. Yeah. And I think they probably thought they could get me cheaper, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you first get start coming in around that level, and even club racing, you're starting to win things. Is the is the environment back then very welcoming in in the sport? Was it was it come and race, or is it like who's this upstart over here? Ah, uh, no, very welcoming. It was just a bunch of friends. Even even I think when I signed for Suzuki. 
in 77. Um, it was so, there was so much camaraderie and people still, I, I think Barry Sheen was the only one that lived in a hotel. Everyone else stayed in the paddock and it was just right. a, still a bunch of mates. And I, looking back on it, probably I didn't take it seriously enough because uh, I was still just enjoying all the fun that went on. And it was starting, that was about the time when it, it did get serious because when I signed for Suzuki's in 77, Pat Hennon was also part of the team and he was American that was going off running and training and going to the gym and all that kind of thing and not smoking. And uh, and it was the transition point. Kenny Roberts started to turn up and, again, from America, they were all taking it far more seriously probably than we were. So right. now I look back on it, I think I probably missed the boat a tiny little bit because – I was still enjoying the fun and the, yeah. the mucking around, I guess you'd say, yeah. And they often, they often say when you, when you meet your heroes that, you know, it, it can let you down, appreciating your teammate and you got on. I presume that obviously wasn't the case, it was certainly in Barry's scenario. Yeah, it was. I was still in awe of the guy because he was, when I joined, he'd won the 76 World Championship. He'd driven around a Rolls Royce, got the beautiful model wife or girlfriend of Stephanie and knew everybody and introduced George Harrison to me and, you know, all, the, all these famous people that I've watched on television I'm sort of hanging around with and couldn't believe it. Uh, and I actually, 77, considering I'd never been abroad until I got on a plane to go to the Venezuelan Grand Prix. I'd never been on an aeroplane before then. So I was very wet behind the ears and went off and did all these amazing, astonishing things and ended up fifth in the World Championship. And I had not seen any of the tracks that year, didn't have a clue where I was going, so I had to learn all the circuits. And it was all a bit brand new to me. But, um, yeah, I think, I think I sort of acquitted myself pretty well that year. Yeah, but sure. I was walking around with my tongue hanging around, looking at what was going on and all these amazing countries I was going to and still having to drive my truck, by the way. I was still, even as a factory rider, I'm driving around in a transit with a caravan on the back and the whole team consisted of my mechanic, Martin Brookman, and my girlfriend who did the pit boards and we lived in the van and caravan and travelled the world. Wow. So you can imagine it was a lot more fun than it is now because yeah. people get on aeroplanes and travel and they don't travel with their crews and stuff like that. So, And on that, how, how did you find the prospect of traveling the world? Did that, was that something you were excited for? You know, someone just kind of being limited, not limited, but racing around the Cambridge area, UK to suddenly actually, I'm going to be doing all this off, off the back of the car and going around the world. Some people might be a bit uh, cautious about that, but is that something that you kind of jumped straight into? Yeah, loved it. Um, just just kind of adored all the not knowing what was coming next, you know. And I think it's a bit like when you go on holiday, if you go somewhere different, it's different, isn't it? You know, you go back the same place three times, you know everything's going on. So all of a sudden, and, and you've got to remember, um, unfortunately, I'd say unfortunately, I think we're probably going back into it. We would set off from... Uh, Cambridgeshire in the transit in the van, we'd go to Dover and we'd get on a ferry because there was no tunnel. We would have a briefcase full of documents with carnets on because when you got to France, you had to have your carnet stamp. And then when you drove from France to Belgium, which was 20 miles, you had to have your carnet stamp to go to Belgium. And then you'd have to have another one stamp to go into Holland and then another one stamp when you went up to Sweden and to Finland. And, uh, and not only did you have to have those stamped, you had to have a pile of T-shirts and caps and stickers to give to the customs guy else he wouldn't stamp your carnet. So it was, it was all so educational. 
And then you'd run out of diesel and you'd have a, a, a pipe and you'd suck diesel out of a digger on the side of the road because it was cheaper than buying it or you were in the middle of no, some nowhere. Um, and then you'd get on a ferry and, and all these different languages you would have in the back of the caravan a whole cupboard full of different money. There'd be Belgian money, French money, yeah. Swedish money, Finnish mm. money, Czech Republic, you know, you name it. And every single country you went to, you had to have all this money. You didn't have a credit card. You just had cash. That was all it was. Yeah. So it was such an education. And I just adored it. You know, if you, don't, you can never go back to what you've done, but it was absolutely fascinating. And if you got a racing motorbike, everyone loved you because it was the one thing that, that made your life easier because most people wanted to know Barry Sheen and I knew Barry Sheen. It was that kind of thing. That would open the door up. What do you do? I race motorbikes. Oh, yeah. Is that is that on the dirt? Is that speed? No, no, it's road racing. Oh, what's road racing? Barry Sheen. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And that would be like now if you did it, you'd say Valentina Rossi, wouldn't you? Kind of it's yeah. the key to opening the door to people that don't know what's going on. Yeah. So it was astonishing, fascinating, massively dangerous. Every year five, six people were killed, and that wasn't just on the Isle of Man. That would be uh, in the Czech Republic. It would be at Francochamp. It would be – all they were all road tracks, a lot of the circuits we went to. Oh. Uh, Imatra, uh, Czech Republic, they were all street circuits the same, so people died, unfortunately. No one had any decent leathers or helmets, and there was houses and walls and trees everywhere and the odd bale, and you had to be William Tell to hit it. And did you uh... – did that ever go? Because again, we spoke to a psychologist about certainly, obviously, TT. It was particularly TT focused in that that they, well, on the outside as an, as an observer, you think they're absolutely bonkers, but on the inside, they're you know they're just managing the risk. They sell the bike, they understand the bike, they understand what they're doing. They're so sort of in that moment that while we see it as the most risky thing in the world, that, that they, they feel it's obviously calculated risk they're taking that they're managing. Was that would that be the same in in those scenarios even on? So short circuit, uh, appreciating some of them might be road, 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 road. Yeah, I'm not sure how we managed it. We we managed it by saying, oh, well, he was kind of yeah. asking, he was driving like an idiot or riding like an idiot, which he yeah. wasn't. just unlucky. It was absolutely sheer luck. I fell off just as many times as John Newbold had got killed, Peter, um, John Williams, John Newbold, Dave Potter, uh, Mark Sat, you know, just all these mates of mine that got killed. I used to fall off just as many times as them, but I just happened to miss that pole, that house, that tree, that whatever. Um, and you managed it by thinking it's going to happen to someone else and not you. Um, the, the part that used to be, it wasn't the accident and you can't, oh, poor old Dave got killed. It was the sort of caravan and van parked in the paddock with no one to take it home was the bit that was the eerie, weird part. And mm -hmm. Someone would have to come and collect it. And that was, and you had to blink yourself. You really did. And I think I did blink on myself to a certain extent. I, I find it more emotional now when friends die of old age or cancer or something like that than I ever did racing because racing, you, you couldn't accept it. You couldn't absorb it. Yeah. I could only imagine it's, just you have to kind of shut it, try and shut it out again. You look at races mm -hmm. and they race the next day. I haven't seen their mate die the day before. Yeah, that uh, that mm -hmm. detachment must be you know an important part of that process, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it made you hard. Probably my my first wife was probably what you got rid of me. It was I was a kind of hard bastard, I guess you'd say, that didn't have any feelings for anyone else, and it, that wasn't the case at all. I think I just couldn't absorb those factors and feelings and seeing distraught wives and kids around that lost their father. And uh, I remember Tom Heron died at the Northwest. We were having a battle. He was trying to overtake me and he crashed. 
And I had to go that next day back to Brands Hatch and race and, and these mechanics were, oh, you know, it's just awful, really. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know if I could do it now because my life's changed dramatically. But at the time, I was young. All I wanted to do was race a motorbike and it didn't matter what anyone put in front of me, I blinkered it out and got on with it. And yeah, I wasn't the only one. Everyone did it. I could imagine a group of lads as well. You, you know, if, I don't know if that ever conversation will come up, but you wouldn't expect them not to race the next day. So, uh, yeah. No, sure. Well, the old adage was, oh, he would want you to, you know, yeah. uh, and you sort of, oh, well, I'll take that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll crack on. So yeah. can I ask, the 77 uh, with Barry Sheen, you're on a Suzuki, is that correct? Yeah. So the year before, did you race the Suzuki, or was that the first time you'd been on a Suzuki as well? I had a production model of just one that you could buy, um, which right. wasn't quite like the factory bike. But in 1976, Suzuki's started selling a few production models that you could buy, which weren't dissimilar that much. You know, they didn't have all the lightweight titanium and magnesium and odds and ends like that, but they weren't that bad. So as soon as I jumped on the factory bike in 77, yeah, it was a dream. Loved it. And in fact, I didn't get a new bike that year. I had Barry's bike from 76. I got his old bike and he went on with a new model and I carried on that in 77 with his old 76 bike. Um, And then uh, unfortunately at the end of 77, Suzuki's had a massive cut back on finances. I don't even know what went on. Um, and so they, and even though I'd done really well that year, I won another Shell Sport 500 championship in, in the UK. Um, they decided that they couldn't, they didn't have a budget for me, but Barry got George Harrison to give me enough money to go and buy some bikes, which was really cool. So I, I was sponsored by a skateboard company called Makahar and George Harrison. And Suzuki's let me keep the bikes, but I was just under my own colours as opposed to running in their colours. And then they re-employed me and I went back and joined the factory team in 79. Right. So, yeah. But, yeah, great periods. And, and uh, it, it, you could see that it was changing, though. It was right on the cusp of starting to become professional sports people, I guess you could say, as opposed to motorcycle racers that were – it was called the Continental Circus, and that was a bit of what it was back in those days. You just travel around, a bunch of people, and we'd race every other week. And the week in between, you'd end up on the lake in Geneva, mucking around with all your mates. So it was like a little, you know, you'd all end up in the same place with your caravans and camping out, and it was, you know, just a giggle. Was there much money in the sport then? For, for you know, did Barry make much money for being world champion? No, uh, truthfully, there wasn't. The, the only way we made any money, we got absolutely nothing to do Grand Prix. Uh, and I say it was something like 250 Swiss francs, and I can't even remember what that was, but it was nothing. But your um, status in the World Championships got you good start money at international races. So you earned your money riding at a place called Chimay in Belgium or Brands Hatch or Donington Park. or You'd come home and do the international races where they paid you good money um, to ride because you were in the world championships and, and you know Barry got more than everyone because he was the winner I finished fifth so I'd you know be fifth best paid and it was very good money because there's massive crowds that turned up yeah, right. um, and it you know it wasn't anything like you're talking nowadays no, but no. it was far better than, than being an apprentice I can tell yeah. you <laughs> yeah, I'm sure so moving into the 80s then and, and uh, racing career how long did you stay at world level I stayed at world level till about 83 and, and that was as long as I could endure going there and not earning any money because it, it just didn't make any sense. And so I, I got goods backing. I switched to Yamaha in 1981 because Barry did and he got me a good deal there and, um, and they paid me reasonably well. And, and you got private sponsorship from people with helmets and leathers and so on and so on and stuff like that. 
but I'd already got my eye on running a team by sort of mid eighties. Um, and I was still doing okay. I was still competitive, winning races in the UK, doing your Northwest and TTs um, and, and that type of thing. Um, and in fact, by 85, I did my first ever truck race, which again was um, all to do with Barry Sheen because he was sponsored by DAF and they wanted him to drive a truck, even though he'd just finished motorbike racing and I was still racing. So that was another little string to my bow was running around in a, in a truck. Um, yeah. So, uh, sorry, how, how come a few years prior there then that you had your eye on running a team? Because if at that point you wanted to go as fast as possible, why? how come in the back of your mind you were like, I guess already thinking that you were one, what was that, managing without riding or managing and riding? Because I was just... It was because I'd always really, apart from the years I was the factory rider, I'd always run my own team and I didn't find it difficult. I'm a real belt and braces person. I've always got the right spare parts. I've always got a, a secondary part of this. I've always planned ahead. I've got my flights and my ferries and the this and that. I'm an organized person. always have been. Anally organized. Um, and as I say, belt and braces, I've always got a backup to here, there, and everywhere else. And I knew from right at the beginning there were so many clowns out there that could have probably been better than I was because they, but they were disorganized, you know, they'd fall off and they didn't have a spare handlebar, so they didn't do the race. Uh, and so that way I sort of knew I was very capable of running a team, which I started doing. Um, even then I was racing, I was player manager in 86 uh, with a young lad called Kenny Irons. Um, and, and Kenny was one of these great talented riders but captain chaos you know he'd run out of diesel before he got to the racetrack or his bike would fall over in the back of the van and all these kind of things lovely lovely guy very talented but didn't have my organizational skills so i took him under my wing and uh, and we won the super stock championship that year with his bike in my colors and, and i had good sponsorship from a company called loctite that was the other thing i think I was pretty good at was finding finances. I'd go out and you know put my suit on and knock on doors and and present myself in a way that I managed to find some really good sponsorship. So that was in '86. I knew that I didn't want to keep waking up in strange hospitals, wondering who I was, and broken legs and arms and collarbones and everything else. I never got to the stage where I they were got the priest round to see me, but I did have some you know, normal things, arms and legs and collarbones and hips and bits and pieces like that. And so I, I was going to ask about injuries, I suppose, and, and accidents. Were they, after after accidents, do bike riders think, do they always kind of, I use the word look for an excuse, but for, right to, to rationalise it to therefore get them back on the bike? Yeah, you do. Funny, you, you know, it's a bit like, don't we all do it? I don't know if you play golf or tennis, but if you miss, if the ball goes out, you look at your racket, don't you? You just yeah, instinctive, yeah. and and then you look at your club if you hit you. If you, you know, yeah, you, you do. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always look at. We couldn't didn't have data back then. That's the weird thing, you know. Nowadays, you can see exactly what's going on. If if a rider farts, the team knows it now. Yeah, um, yeah. and so we just had. Um, oh, it, it seized or something happened and this happened or what gust of wind got. Well, yeah, you do, you rationalise it a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think by the time I'd done probably the best part of 15 years racing motorbikes, I'd run out of excuses possibly. And I just had got to the stage where I just wasn't getting any better. I knew that you should go flat out through this corner and I wasn't. I was 10% off of that. Um, and I worked it out that I wasn't going to get any faster, any better. And I was starting to get older. I was 31 or two. 
Um, And uh, I got married with another big mistake and kids were coming along and I just worked it out that it was daft to carry on racing and disappointing myself, but I thought I could run a team, so I did. And that team went on from 87 uh, right the way through to 91 and we won every championship there was really with Terry Reimer, Rob McElnee, people like that. And is that the Loxit that was racing here in the late 80s? Yeah, that was my team. Um, Loctite Yamaha had, um, obviously, a lot of my riders didn't do the TT, so we used to take on Jeff Johnson rode for me, uh, Barry Woodland. TT riders would come and ride the bikes. Um, Nick Jeffries, people like that, would ride the Loctite Yamaha bikes, and I would run it, yeah. Yeah, I remember that team because uh, I was brought up in Birchill, up in Onken. Oh, right, that's where the team was based, yeah. Yeah, the garage town in Bala, the, the estate below that, I can't think of the name, uh, I want to say Bala Curry maybe. Uh, and I remember, I think I remember my dad going down because and offering to do some uh, sign po- signposting. Would that be the right term? Pit boarding? No, signboard. Yeah, going out, you know, around the TT course. Yeah, pit board board out. Yeah, I remember them being up in that area. Well, we had a double garage uh, in Onken. I can't right. remember the road. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, As you turn, turn left, coming into Onken up there. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. On that hill, on the way up. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think, it's I think it's called. Uh, mm. Yeah, because I remember the name Barry, certainly Barry Woodland and, uh, yeah. and the Loctite Yamahas, because they kind of, I think one of the guys, or it might have been Jeff, was often number one, I think. On the, mm, the, that's right, he was. Yeah, one, Jeff yeah. did start number one. So that was, you know, it's a good time. I enjoyed running the team. Not, not, uh, I, you know, I mean, I didn't miss the going to hospital part. But <laughs> a little frustrating run out of team because if it goes wrong, it's team manager, and if he win, it's the rider. But nevertheless, it was a, fascinating time for me i had great support from the loctite and yamaha um and it was hugely successful and i arguably probably would have carried on doing that um but the truck racing malarkey came along and uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden i was being offered a factory mercedes team drive so so for, just before we dig into the to the truck thing just to go back to your experiences of riding around the tt course being being the, being the manxies that we are Hmm. What was, I mean, was that a daunting prospect when you when you had the opportunity? Was that something you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was never a proper TT rider. I didn't, um, it wasn't my be all and end all. It was something that fitted. Um, Yamaha wanted to bike out there. Um, I sort of, I got paid to do it, obviously. I knew it was part of the career. Uh, it helped. Uh, but I, I never went to the Isle of Man thinking I was going to win it because I just didn't want to stick my neck out that much. I was definitely 100% an 80% rider at the TT. I knew my parameters. I knew I wanted a metre before me and the curb. Uh, I, if people came past me, I let them go past me. Um, uh, yeah, I just that was me. I was arguably a fifth or sixth rider around. I finished on the podium there in 85, I think it was, and then got disqualified. Right. Um, for an over, alleged oversized fuel. I did get a second in a production race early on, 1980, uh, sorry, 1974 or something like that. I got a second in a production race, but generally I'd come in fifth or sixth or something like that. And that, that was me. I knew I wanted to get on that ferry and go home, and that was kind of how I saw it. Right, right, yeah, okay. And is that, I assume, I mean, how does that, we talked earlier about the, the World Series and some of those races being on road circuits, when you compare them to the TT, appreciating the dynamics are different, but generally the walls and lampposts are the same same hardness. Yeah. Uh, is that just because you've moved on a little bit in your age and career that you didn't want to stick, or um, I think it was more dangerous here? I think one of the differences is is the TT. I I never felt 
and I did it, and I've got 13 replicas or something, 14 I think it is, and about eight of those are silver, nine of silver replicas. Um, I think that I never got to know the TT, not, not like some people. Um, and you talk to Peter Hickman and you talk to Michael Dunlop and Joey back in the day, they tell you where the manhole cover was at Kurt Michael. And this, uh, I never got to that stage. And it, probably my mind didn't want to. Yeah, um, yeah. But the difference was if I raced at Spa or at the Finland in Matra, they were five kilometres round and I did get to know them. You know, it's yeah. so much easier to learn them. So I felt that I could go faster because I knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. Uh, to a certain extent, I would have pushed harder on those circuits because they were sh what I call short circuits, and you you knew every part of it, and you didn't have so many mountain sections and humpback bridges and all those kind of things that go with the Isle of Man. Don't get me wrong, I'm so pleased to did the Isle of Man. I'm very proud to have done it, very pleased to have done it. Would have loved to have to have won it, but I'd have needed more breakdowns or something to have, to for it to have happened. I think my fastest ever lap there was something like 114 or 15, and at the time my um, Joey Dunlop was doing 119 or whatever. You know, I was, I was that that bit off, and that that was the way it was. And I didn't really want to go out there and go those that extra mile. Yeah, again, I suppose you were talking earlier about just riders, get, and you know, just like any TT rider now, from the first to last, they're, they're calculating their. The risk, the risk they're willing to take, aren't they? Managing that risk and uh, mm. yeah. any harm and not not pushing them to that to that, especially yeah. on such a deadly circle like the Alamar. So the truck, so the truck racing, obviously very successful at that. So you mentioned that the, they were looking at Barry Sheen, and that's how, how you got involved in that. Yeah, it was. Um, I I loved racing. I kind of enjoyed racing cars, and I did the odd car race while racing bikes. And they would be the celebrity races at Brands Hatch or Donington, where they had Ford Escorts, and we'd get invited along to race. And I raced with different people: Michael Lee from Speedway, and Lester Pickett from, uh, well, Willie Carson from Horse Racing. You get these celebrity races, and I'd go along. But every time I did a car race with Barry Sheen, I could beat it. Come a motorbike, he'd beat me. Come cars, I'd beat him. And I always felt pretty comfortable in a car, and that might be going back to my youth, as I said, on the disused airfield, it didn't matter if it was a bike or a car, and I was always pretty handy at a car. So truck racing turned up, and Daft wanted Barry to do it, and I was really wanting to do it desperately. So I actually took myself along to Mercedes-Benz at Milton Keynes, uh, their headquarters in the UK, and, and presented myself and said, Barry Sheen's driving a truck at Donington Park, and it's the first ever race in the UK, the multi-part truck Grand Prix, and there was Mike Smith, who was a Radio 1 DJ doing it, and there was Martin oh, wow. Rundle was doing it for Renault because he was Formula 1 driver, and there was all these famous names again. So I went along and said, look, I'm pretty handy. I reckon I can beat Barry Sheen in his DAF if you've got a Mercedes. And, and then they were road trucks. They just literally oh. were a standard road truck which was so dangerous because had no roll cages or no brakes mm -hmm. anyway sure enough the race came along and there i was in my mercedes benz and with no brakes after two laps and this and i finished up second in the race and did really well so they loved it and kind of it just went on from there it got very very serious from standard road trucks to in the end uh, my last ever truck race was 2001 and i've done 10 years as a factory driver for Mercedes, winning five of their uh, European championships, uh, probably the most successful truck race has been. And, yeah. and, and sort of loved it. But the last truck I raced had 2,200 horsepower, 7,000 7, newton metres of torque, and would leave a 911 turbo Porsche for dead to 100 miles an hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just ridiculously powerful. And they were like a race car that looked like a truck, I guess you could say. But it was a great, great time. The best part for me was I wasn't going to hospital every week because if you had a crash, it, it usually 
destroyed everything that you hit and not you because <laughs> um, of the kinetic energy with it. But also the development was wonderful. We developed diesel engines that were horrible in the beginning. Uh, when I first started driving trucks, if you if you drove a diesel car, it was because you liked the smell or the noise. It wasn't for anything else. Um, yeah. and, and nowadays, modern diesel engines are better than petrol engines. So it was a lot of Mercedes development went into that, particulate filters and brake systems and everything else. That so, I appreciate uh, the, the I mean, at that level, you've got, I presume, got we'll call them factory teams, but are the people doing it privately that race that, that, at that level? Yeah, there was absolutely. The, the European Championship was a mixture of factory teams and, and but, but all, a lot of big factory teams, MAN, DAF, Caterpillar, uh, they were all doing it. And I have to tell you, I got paid a lot, lot more racing trucks than I did racing motorbikes because. Yeah. It was for Mercedes-Benz Stuttgart. You know, it was a big, big setup with hundreds, well, not hundreds, but there's probably 30, 40 people in my team, mechanics and technicians and data loggers and tyre people and chassis people and everything else that, that went along with it. And it was, a, you know, it was a great period, really, I guess you could say, with still being able to go as fast as I possibly could, still being going racing. Uh, still living on the edge of a little bit, but not so much pain and <laughs> broken legs. Yeah, but the, mm. the early the early days of trucks. Going back very quickly, it, when I said they were road trucks, they they didn't know how to sort of um, put them in different categories, so that you had the different horsepowers. And there was so much cheating going on; it was obscene. They, yeah, I had a switch on mine. If you turn the radio on, it had about another three hundred horsepower and things like that. There was all these kind of little tricks. <laughs> everyone had and it was fun but eventually it got so serious that it was obviously monitored by the FIA the people that monitor Formula One and it, and it got you know it got very very professional in the end yeah I did, I did oh, that was a question I was going to ask because I don't know but I assume all trucks have different powers etc so yeah is it just much like I suppose motorbikes have a 500cc or 750 doesn't mm. work in that category but I obviously got to that stage because it got so professional mm. Yeah, um, it, it was on on capacity, but with a big diesel engine, and to the certain extent with a big car petrol engine, it's turbo. If you can pump enough fuel in and enough air in, then you can get more and more power. And the, yeah. the engine we ended up with, and truck racing still is, it's twelve liters, which is a pretty big engine. Um, but a twelve liter road truck would arguably have four hundred horsepower, something like that. You know, these things had over two thousand. So just yeah. by ramping them up with lots of air and lots of fuel, you can get more more power out of them um making them lighter i assume helps the what sorry making them lighter yeah sure they you, absolutely and also putting the engine lower and in the middle okay. uh, that type of thing took place and, and it very much was development for someone like mercedes-benz and i'm sure daf and i'm sure caterpillar and i'm sure um man they did develop their road vehicles from it and and for hospitality it was huge the the german truck grand prix at Nürburgring uh, had over the weekend about 350,000 people there. It was, it made the Formula One race in Germany tiny. It was so much bigger. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of the truck races we'd go to, there are far more crowds than you get at motorcycle races and car races because it was right. okay. just, just a weird thing, isn't it? It's a big industry, the transport <laughs> industry. And the guy that drives a Scania wants the anorak and the cap that goes with it. Whereas the guy that drives his Ford Focus to sell his brushes isn't doesn't give a damn what he's in. You know, there's an affinity, a bit like motorcycle racing, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Uh, mm. And it's like truck racing nowadays, again, not something you see a lot on TV. Is it still uh, still have that appeal? 
It's, it's back to privateers because um, the reason I stopped in 2001, I'd probably still be trying to do it, was Mercedes-Benz withdrew um, because they'd used all their kind of marketing and hospitality. They'd done it for a long time. When they quit, MAN did and, and so did um, the other big manufacturers pulled out because it was tantamount to Ferrari stopping in Formula One. It was kind of the lead team stop. So it's gone back to more or less privateers. Now. It still goes on, and I usually go to the final round in normal years, which is in Harama in Spain, and do the awards night for them. And they'll still get a bigger crowd there than they do for any car racing or anything else like that. It's still very popular mm-hmm. in Europe, but not quite so much money involved, which is not bad, such a bad thing. They've, they've detuned the trucks a little bit. They've made them more reliable and not so high tech so that privateers can afford it. Yeah. And, and not thought about trying to run your own team in the trucks now? <laughs> No, funnily enough, I haven't actually because I think the truck that I was driving was about a million quid's worth. So I just, <laughs> I'm annoyed that they never gave me one for a road vehicle. So <laughs> parked in the driveway. It would have been quite nice to have parked in the drive. So no. And, you know, let's face it, I was getting on a bit by then. Um, yeah, I was over, coming up 50 years old. Um, and But then, ridiculously, I was absolutely flat out in doing my commentary work. So that was the next thing. And I I had a situation where if truck racing had carried on, I'd have had to make my mind up because I had a call from BBC to when they started doing World Superbikes in about 2000 um, and and then going on to do Grand Prix. And it was a full-time job. Yeah. So when did that first commentary kind of opportunity start? Because that was a bit before, I appreciate Oh, wow. I was doing Eurosport work when I was running my team back in 87, 88. I'd like be packing the team out on the track and then running up in the commentary booth to join Barry Nutley to do the commentary for BBC and Eurosport and whoever wanted me. How how did that door open? Sorry? How How did did that door open? You know what? It's It's actually quite a nice little story. It all started at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, and I'm going to say 82, maybe 83. Uh, I'd got a TZ500 Yamaha that were notoriously bad at starting. Uh, remember, this was push starting back then. So you'd stand by the bike and the cold tyres or whatever you'd have and the flag would drop and you'd all run like hell and jump on. And I ran like hell, jumped on, it didn't start. Ran like hell, jumped on, it didn't start. I think the riders were about to come around and lap me and I'm still trying to push this blinking 500 uh, Yamaha. So I threw it against pit wall, climbed up over the pit wall and there was a guy called Smith, and I can't remember his first name, that was BBC Radio 5 Live or Sport on 2 with his pack on and everything else, rammed this microphone in my mouth and wanted me to explain the feeling of coming to the British Grand Prix and the big build-up and my bike not starting. And I went on for about 10 minutes or whatever, and he said, that was absolutely brilliant. Very concise, uh, really enjoyed that. Um, well, if ever you get any time and you want to do a bit of punditry work, you'll have to give us a shout. And that's pretty much how right. it all kicked off. So they say some good things come from bad things. So that yeah. day, the bike didn't start, and it was my first introduction to talking about my, my job as a racing rider, and it sort of stemmed from there, really. Yeah, and bringing that, uh, I, I don't know back then, but obviously more and more now, you see in, in a lot of sports, X, that sport being part of the commentary team, bringing that technical aspect. So I suppose that was part of it as well, having been on the front line, you can then bring that technical expertise. Yeah, I mean, I personally think a commentary team, if it is a team, it's imperative to have someone that has done it. And I'm not saying they're always going to be the best commentator because, you know, you can have a lead guy that can, can hold it all together. But I really do believe that 
someone that's been out there, done it. And that would be with any sport, I think, that it's so hard for anyone to imagine what it's like doing it if you've never done it. I really yeah. do. And I think you add a great deal to it. And that's from a pundit's point of view um, and a colour guy, then I think it's absolutely imperative. Yeah, it brings the, to me as a, as a, as a listener, it brings validity because you know what they're saying. They've, they've done it, experienced it, yeah. and can, can relate to it. It brings credibility to yeah. it, you know, I personally think. And to yeah, say, some people can do it, some can't. And, you know, some people, that's the other weird thing about being a, a commentator is that, you know, you're loved by some and hated by others. And you get, I used to get hate mail sometimes if I said something wrong about Valentino Rossi. Oh, I'm going to come come around your house and, and weird oh. things like that. It's, it's very peculiar. And then others love whatever you're saying. And it's quite quite fun fun thing doing. Um, obviously, again, not as good as being out on the track, but from a, from anyone that's been in a sport, it's sort of the next best thing to do because you're in that same environment. It's interesting, actually, because it, it just to go slightly off tangent, but you're fairly active on Twitter, obviously pretty high profile. Do you get much negativity? And if you do, how do you deal with it? Do you just block them? <laughs> no, I don't really bother blocking them. I mean, there's so many keyboard warriors out there and they say some love you, some hate you. Well, I couldn't give a shit, frankly. I don't, you know, it really doesn't bother me. It's usually some out-of-work plumber or flipping plaster or something that doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. But everyone's have their opinion, and, you know, that is maybe the bad side of social networking. Some people get upset with it, and and, and it is weird, isn't it, when if you're working as a commentator and some bloke thinks he knows better than you and, you know, he's probably never been to a race, and it's, it's just weird. But, no, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I, I fully accept that some people can't stand me and others enjoy what I do. And that's yeah. really what it's about. I always like that psychology of people where, you know, they're perhaps giving you a chip. And you've seen, I mean, recently, oh, it was a few years ago, and actually uh, John McGuinness was getting a bit, a bit of chip. But the people kind of follow you and then they're attacking you. And you're just like, the mentality yeah. just seems bonkers because, it's like, if, you don't want, if you're not interested or you don't like my opinion, just click that unfollow button. The fact, yeah. that, the fact that following you and sending you something is ultimately all they're really after is a reaction. Yeah, yeah, sure. And they, they kind of want the reaction and then it gives them more followers or whatever yeah. it do and so on and so on. Yeah, yeah no, I know. I fully accept, you know, everyone has their opinion. And there are times when you, you sometimes, and as a commentator, you sometimes don't want to, and it's difficult, you don't want to say what you're thinking because it's going to upset too many people, which is wrong. I know mm. it's wrong. But you just have to be a little bit careful that you just don't, you know. I, I remember saying uh, it would have been 2012, 13. I said, unfortunately, I'm a big, big fan of Valentino Rossi, but he's never going to win, win another world championship. You don't know what you're talking about this, and well, he hasn't. And I kind of could see that back then because I knew where his mind was. I understood what was happening and the youngsters coming along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to go back, because a question I had earlier about truck racing in general, having never even probably been in a truck. How I mean, technique-wise, is that is that about? You see, horsepower is important, but carrying corner speed when you compare it to a bike or, or motor car race, and what's the you know you're being being champion at it? So yeah, it's a really good question. It's a good question that I can easily answer. Um, and and so many people have said, how the hell can you go from motorcycles to trucks? Well, actually, there is far more similarities racing motorcycles and truck racing than there is car racing because. Okay. A truck is a big, big lump, 5,000 kilograms, five tons, basically. It's got massive amounts of kinetic energy. It doesn't want to go around corners. You have to be gentle and very, very smooth with it, which is exactly like a motorcycle. A motorcycle doesn't 
jink like a Formula One car. It doesn't just turn left or right through a chicane. You have to make it flow and you have to coax it through corners because of the gyroscopic effect you have with the big wheels and the high speeds. So truck racing came very naturally to me because all I, I knew that you just had to kind of treat it like a lady and be very careful with it and not force anything through. And everyone that jumped out of cars and some of the great drivers, I remember people like Denny Holmes, Stig Blomquist, some of the German touring car drivers, they all had a go at it, but never really grasped the way to treat and drive a truck. And you don't have a great deal of grip. So for me, coming from motorcycles to trucks was ideal because it was all about being smooth and making it flow. Yeah. And it worked. Right. So, so, so pivot a little bit and chat about uh, the practical joker and some, some, some sort of stories, if that's okay. A uh, couple of the ones that uh, perhaps, well, one, mentioned Dave more earlier, as I mentioned, uh, through family connection. Uh, and I've met Dave and uh, chatting to him yesterday. He mentioned to ask about a story from 1976, if you can remember it, about uh, dumping some fuel at Assen. Dumping some fuel at Assen. Oh my God! Um, you know, I I don't know. I, I really don't. I don't remember that. But I, you know, it's really quite weird in that I get people, even to this day, coming up to me or sending me something, going, "Oh, do you remember what happened at so and so?" Because and and it would have affected them probably more than it affected me. I had one guy that came and complained to me, and and, and it, I was staying uh, at a hotel somewhere near Paul Ricard. Um, and I changed his door number uh, to a fire escape, and he went, <laughs> went out of fire escape and fell down a set of stairs. And I, don't, I didn't even remember it. And this bloke, poor bloke, he had to go to hospital. <laughs> and I, I don't even remember it happening. And he was, he'd got all the details of exactly where it was and the hotel it was and things like that. Dumping fuel in Assen. No, I don't even yeah, remember. No, there, was no, there was red diesel all over the track, apparently. Oh, really? Right. Oh, yes. Hang on. Yes, I do. I do. I do. Now you're talking. Um, yes, it was, was Dave, Dave Moore had a Mercedes van, a big, long, we'll call it a transport, I guess you could say. And we used to buy diesel very, very cheap in the UK. And it used to have enormous fuel tank on it. It held like, instead of a normal fuel tank holding 200 litres, this thing held about 1,000 litres. So we could <laughs> drive it all the way from the UK down to Italy and back through Spain and get home without having to fill up with expensive fuel. And you're right, we, the circuit at Assen used to be the road, and you literally turned up there in the mornings or when you got there on the Thursday and you drove or pretty much three-quarters of the way around the track to the paddock area, and then they'd close the roads for normal public on Friday morning and practice would happen. And I think on our way in there, our fuel pump, somewhere we'd tried to do something, and we basically covered the whole circuit in <laughs> Probably red diesel. Yeah, red diesel, he said, yeah. Yeah, it would be red diesel because we were getting it from the farmyards. Yeah. Um, and the whole of the circuit was just like an ice rink. And everyone was going, I wonder whatever's happened here. What's happened? We just, thank God, we never got caught. Yeah, just yeah. shaking yeah. your head in disbelief and trying yeah. to keep a low profile. Yeah, what idiot did that? What <laughs> loop it? it would have been, it must have been that van that was putting the bales out or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there was um, a number of occasions where just silly, daft things used to happen. Uh, like that. I remember at Assen, uh, another little story that I don't think I put it in my book actually. It was a, a really good friend of mine, Philippe Coulomb, who was riding in the 500s, similar time. I mean, we were both privateers. We were always battling together, fifth, sixth, you know, that sort of era um, area. And we would always have a great party at Assen on the Saturday night because the race was on the Saturday. And then on Sunday, we'd all drive down to the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. 
And the reason you'd go on the Sunday, because if you wanted a good parking place, you'd get there on the Sunday. Otherwise, all the best places were gone and you'd be next to the toilets or something like that. <laughs> so anyway, um, that Saturday night, we had a really good drink and I don't know, got to bed about four o'clock in the morning. And I think nine o'clock in the morning, I woke up and decided I was going to beat Philippe Coulon and everyone else down to the paddock in Belgium. And he was all hooked up, ready to go. Well, I unhooked his caravan. <laughs> And, and took the wire out and everything else, but you couldn't see it was unhooked. I've got everything all lined up perfectly. Anyway, sure enough, they set off and they got nearly to Belgium before they realised they hadn't got the caravan. <laughs> what they didn't realise was that it was still in the paddock. They went all the way, they backtracked all the way, looking in every single field beside Oh, yeah, come off in a ditch. They it come off. You know, it took them about four or five hours. It was a three-hour journey. It took about five hours to get back to, to Holland and, and to Assen to look, and there, sure enough, was their caravan. <laughs> they were probably half relieved it was there and not in a ditch somewhere on the way. I think they probably were, yeah. yeah. And did you own up to it? Uh, they they kind of knew, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah. right. oh it's him. Yeah, Someone yeah. grasped me up. Yeah. Yeah, right. And um, I think one of the fairly well-known stories, which I've heard before, is the Macau and uh, setting off fireworks. Mm, yeah, yeah. That was, a, that was another little mistake that went wrong. And in fact, um, I wonder if he's listening to it, because he often tries to deny it. You've got an Isle of Man resident there called Paul Butler. Um, who was the race director at MotoGP for many, many years. And he was also Kenny Roberts' manager, who's a finance guy. And Paul lives on the island now with his lovely wife, Vicky. And Paul and I and uh, Howard Lees was another rider who sadly got killed, unfortunately. And we decided that it'd be really good fun because I was always buying fireworks in Macau because that's pretty much where they used to manufacture them for Chinese New Year. And you could go down the back street in Macau and buy the biggest firework you've ever seen, the size of a 45-gallon drum, and it'd cost you about a pound. And I loved these. I loved a bit of pyrotechnics. And I'd be letting these things off everywhere, and everyone was getting fed up with them. And so we thought what would be really good fun on the Sunday night after the Grand Prix, Macau Grand Prix, to go to an establishment where we knew there'd be a number of people from the racing fraternity, which happened to be the place that had a red light over the door and lots of girls <laughs> sat behind a little cage with numbers on and um we, we it's like a military operation i think it was like 8 15 we decided we'd open the doors and they were electric doors and and paul butler at the time was smoking cigars so he'd be the person that would put his cigar to the blue touch paper <laughs> i was gonna no howard lees was gonna roll it in and i was the getaway driver that was the plan there was three of us all lined up to do this uh, and it all went fairly much according to plan, apart from the fuse was shorter than we thought, and it all set off earlier than we thought, and there was paper and sparks and flames flying everywhere. Um, and then the the reason I wasn't a very good getaway driver, I couldn't stop laughing because half the people I knew, some were my mechanics, came naked, running naked out the back. You know, it was like, like a carry-on film it was. So anyway... Sadly, the chief of police was also in there. I don't know what he was up to. <laughs> I was going to say a backhander, probably a fronthander, but whatever. <laughs> he, was in, he was in there and his uh, driver, he had his own driver, was sat at the bar watching everything that took place, ended up following us back to the hotel and cutting the story reasonably short. Um, they ended up putting us in prison for four days, five days out there, which was very embarrassing because I'd only just got married. I had to phone my wife up and say, I'm in prison for blowing up a brothel. <laughs> went, went down like a kidney stone. Mm. Yeah, right. And were you on a, was that, I mean, team-wise, were you, were you on a team that stage? I presume they were frowning at you if that was the case. Uh, it was headlines. Well, soccer news headlines, yeah, yeah. whatever year it was, was gang bang goes bong or something like that. <laughs> 
headline that you'd get in the sun or something like that. <laughs> Brilliant. I know Yamaha weren't hugely impressed. Locked up, locked up. It was quite funny actually. <laughs> um, uh, so it was sort of you know tongue in cheek type thing. But uh, I actually I, I, I won't go on. But I'd actually escaped. I managed to get off the Macau before the police got us, and then they impounded all the bikes and Formula 3 cars until I went back. So I'd escaped initially and I had to go all the way back because they impounded everyone's motorbikes and cars. But, yeah, I got a little bit of a bollocking from my wife, as you can imagine, and uh, Yamaha weren't hugely impressed that this all took place. But there you go. On the front of of MCM, what's the problem? (laughs) Exactly. That's what I thought. Yeah, it's good publicity, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, exactly, yeah. So so speaking of, like, general vehicles as well and then part, part into that, the, I suppose the, the side of funnier stories. You own a fire engine, is that right? Or well, you had one? I did have a fire engine. I had all sorts. Of, I had an ambulance, fire engine, oh. armored car, tank. Um, Any reason? Uh, yeah, just again makes me laugh. Made other people laugh. I had a lot of fun with them, really. Yeah. Uh, going to people's functions and making out the place was on fire, hosing out pubs with I knew the landlord. Uh, just just a giggle it used to hold about 10 people so if you went to a party you could all go in the fire engine or, oh, right. <laughs> um, the ambulance was good for traffic because you just go down the outside of all the traffic had a hearse oh, yeah, lines. had a lot of fun with the hearse that was always hilarious having to um, go to places in a hearse at my daughter's 21st birthday party I went in the hearse to that and all her mates turned around and thought there was some funeral going on I didn't know they were at the right place and just the daughter rolling her eyes at you yeah, exactly. Not mm-hmm. being at all impressed, especially when I used to take them to school in it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I had lots of – make he makes me laugh. I don't know. Life's too short to yeah. not, not laugh and giggle, and that they were vehicles that had an awful lot of fun with them. Mm. Your famous number plate. Yeah, I got into trouble, actually. Isle of Man didn't like Pen 15. When oh, I, okay. When I moved out there, they weren't impressed with it. So, um, yeah, what, yeah. What was that, just a talent off or don't use it? Yeah, it was. It wasn't deemed to be the right vehicle to be driving around yeah. uh, the Isle of Man with that. So I sold it and got bought sixty CK instead. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> which, I, which I still use. <laughs> I, they were originally. I had pet. I had bought. I had two of them at one point to stop my wife driving around in my cars. But um, I've got rid of her. So yeah. Really. <laughs> and uh, the other story I heard. Well, the the, the thing I read was uh, with John Hopkins. And being a posing as a medical doctor, is there a story there? Yeah, there is. John Hopkins still has never bought me a beer, and he owes me a big, big beer because John Hopkins. And this is a very true story. Two, I, I'm going to say 2003, I think it was at the Japanese Grand Prix. Hopper was riding for Suzuki's. He had quite a big crash at Mategi um, and uh, broke his collarbone and some ribs, and. Obviously wanted to get back to London as quick as possible to get patched up and this and the other. And for some reason, he did tell me the story. He didn't have his helper with him. I mean, most of the guys always had a helmet cleaner or someone that would carry their bags around for them. And for some reason, this this particular year, he didn't have anyone with him. And we're all departing on the Monday morning back to London. When I say we all, the 747 British Airways, and it was, I even remember the name, it was BA007, which was Narita, Tokyo, back to London, was full of Grand Prix people, riders, mechanics, press, and we were all on it, Susie Perry, uh, Charlie Cox, Matt Roberts, myself, and Hoppo was late getting on the plane, all strapped up and everything else, gets sat um, near to me, and... Um, just in a bit of a panic because he uh, nearly missed the plane. Anyway, he goes to put his bag up in the locker and the flight um, 
uh, couldn't uh, what do you call them now? They're not yeah, uh, attendant. A flight attendant. Um, they've got so many different names now. They used to be uh, 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 stewardesses, weren't they? But anyway, yeah. flight attendant. She spots Hoppo's struggling to put his bag up in the locker. And uh, says, oh, Mr. Hopkins, uh, can I help you? Oh, yes, he said, if you wouldn't mind, if you could just put my bag up. She said, oh, what's the problem? And so he said, oh, I've got, got some broken ribs. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to chatter up, really. I'm, I'm a Grand Prix rider and this and the other. Well, she goes straight to the cabin director and grasses him up and says, bloke sat in 6B, he's got broken ribs. I don't think it's our policy to let people fly in case of the air pressure changes and punctured lungs and everything else. So now it's all kicking off and we've got five minutes before pushback and I wanted to get back and Charlie did. We would got meetings, and they're about to evict Hoppo off the plane. They're going to chuck him off the airplane, and by chucking him off, his luggage would have been it would have been a, at least an hour delay. So I swept into action. I said, "I've been listening to the conversation to the cabin director." I said, I'm actually a doctor um, and I've examined Mr. Hopkins and he's perfectly okay to fly, thinking it would diffuse the situation. They'd just go, cabin director says, oh, well, uh, it's not my decision. I'm going to have to get the captain down. And sure enough, bloody captain comes all the way down the stairs in the 747 and talks to his cabin director and the cabin director explains that I'm sat here and I'm a doctor and he says, have you got any identification? Mm-hmm. And luckily, my business cards, and they still are, they've got NLAMN on them, which looks a bit like I'm sort of titled, got a doctor, but the NLAMN. N-A-M stands for no letters after my name because I've never had any. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and it's also got a PhD on it, which stands for, because I used to do a bit of Pizza Hut delivery, so it all looks kind of good. (laughs) 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 So uh, the captain goes for it and he said, well, I just want you to write on here. He said, I'm going to write on the back of this menu, John Hopkins sat in 6B, he's got broken ribs, he's flying back to London. Uh, Dr. Stephen Parrish, PhD, has signed off. And if you just sign here, he says, that way, if he dies, it's your fault. And this, that, the other. So sure enough, off we go. But it didn't come to an end there because halfway through, not halfway, two hours into the flight, I'm just about to put my bed down to go to sleep, along with Charlie and Susie and everyone else. And the cabin director comes up and says, Dr. Parrish, we've got a problem at the back of the plane. Can you help us out? <laughs> I came very close to shitting myself. I, I worked out, I got three options. One was lock myself in the toilet for the duration of the another nine hours of the flight. Um, sort of say, look, I'm only kidding, I'm not really a doctor, and hopefully they weren't going to turn back. Or B, uh, or final uh, third option was to have a go at fixing it. So, and I'm, I've watched Holby and Casualty, so I know a bit about these things. Um, so it turns out all it was, and God, I was so pleased it wasn't someone having a baby or a heart attack, was that they got a drunk. Spanish guy right down the back of the plane that was causing all sorts of issues for the staff and the other passengers and they needed a doctor to certify he was drunk because he was on a connecting flight to Madrid after landing at uh, London. So I said, well, look, I'm I'm more orthopedics, but under the circumstances, I'll I'll help you out. So, and and all I had to do was go down the back and look at this bloke and certify that he was drunk. Well, I get down the back Manuel, who is pissed and demanding more vodka, is only one of the Dorna cameramen that I'd worked Oh, with. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, say, shout my name out and, no. and everything else. And so I just sort of more or less turned around and said, well, clearly the bloke, I've never met the bloke before in my life. He's clearly very, very drunk. <laughs> and the poor bugger got arrested at Heathrow. Yeah, the police took him off. Oh, and Jesus. He never made his flight to Madrid. I've never been happier to get off a plane in my life, I tell you. Yeah, well, perhaps the, the, the drink uh, Hopkins owes you, you owe Manuel. 
Yeah, quite, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. Poor, old, poor old man. Well, but yeah, Hoppo has never fully, fully drunk me up or tipped me for that. Yeah, 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 never yeah. have been on that plane. It hasn't been for me. Yeah. My <laughs> producer at BBC, Belinda Rogerson, went absolutely berserk. She was not at all happy that I was impersonating a doctor. Oh, yeah. I, I had to explain that I worked for BBC Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was a Monday, so she. Was <laughs> so that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Again, publicity is all good publicity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, so speaking of airlines, then you're a pilot yourself. When did you? When did that? When did you want to? You know, when um, that? is that uh, a new thing as well, or just convenience? Yes, you know, I got bored. I had a winter. I mean, I should be doing something now, but I can't. Um, I, it was. I was racing trucks, and I'm going to say it was about '93. Um, packed up the team by then. Racing trucks got the winter off. Nothing to do. Fancied an aeroplane, so I went to my local flying club, which was five miles away. And literally that day, signed up to do my pilot's license. And within a month, I'd done it. I just hammered it. Uh, bought a plane from the flying club that sort of within that month and have had one ever since and used it a hell of a lot. It's been the best thing I ever did to get around, to go in places, particularly when I was living on the island, going back to the falls was so simple. Um, yeah. And going to Goodwood and to Thruxton and to Donington and to – you know, Cadwell, all the places around, um, used it a lot for the European races, always used to fly to Le Mans and to Assen, um, Saxon Ring in Germany uh, with Charlie and Susie. It was Plummet Airlines, BBC, yeah. Yeah, right. They, they all had to go business class so I could charge BBC a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what seater is it? It's only four seats, but right. it, you know, we'd, we'd head off down to Germany and Holland and places like that. I've taken it down to my house in Mallorca a few times, yeah. Right. What does that fly then, like 12,000 feet type of thing, or is that higher? I don't know. Uh, it gets about, about 10,000 feet if you're oh, on a long distance, but generally it's sort of four or 5,000 feet. You go a bit faster if you're at 10,000 feet, but right. it takes a long while to get up there. It's not pressurised or anything. After 15,000 feet, you start gasping for air, and so does the engine, so you don't bother. Yeah. Right. Uh, but no, if I was going to the Isle of Man, it's just 3,500 feet straight out of the top of Liverpool, and it takes me an hour and 15 minutes. Right. And what about going to New York? How long would that take? Oh, that's four hours, yeah. Four, right. four, would you need so to stop for that or was it few? Yeah, stop at, stop at Carcassonne and have a bit of lunch and a bottle of wine or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know on your gate, I think on your gate, haven't you, by, by where I presume you land the plane, where you live there, you've got an international departure board. Yeah, yeah, it's Plummet Airways International Word, Departures and Arrivals, yeah. And have you had any moments in that? Oh, yeah, a few. Um, again, a bit like... like um, motorbikes weather's normally the issue flying in bad weather is often a problem and running into storms and stuff like that um but no nothing nothing desperately bad i guess trying to get into ronald's way sometimes when it's foggy or getting in and out of there yeah it's uh, always luckily, windy as well isn't it yeah luckily they've got an ils <laughs> there is quite a good story at ronald's in fact there's two one's had an alternator failure so the uh, fire engine came out for me but they loved it because they wanted something to do <laughs> um but on another occasion i'm coming to the isle of man i got my wife with me uh actually we weren't married by then but my girlfriend at the time wife now and we were coming across from liverpool and then i was following there was a i don't know if it was an easy jet or something and then Another one, uh, can't remember what airline it was, but anyway, they both turned back because the wind at Ronald's Way was something like 42 knots gusting 48 right across the runway and there wasn't a runway where it was on the nose. And so I kept hearing the other planes going, um, Ronald's Way, can you give me a weather update? And they'd be going 42 gusting 48 at 030 or something like that. 
and uh, they got they said, "Oh, we'll come a bit further." Anyway, finally, they turn EasyJet turns around, and then British Midland or something turns around. Unfortunately, it was outside their parameters. So the air traffic guy goes, um, "November um, nine six four Bravo, I think it was at the time. That was it was a Cessna one eight two or something." And uh, he said, "Are you still coming in?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, we're still coming in." And my my girlfriend at the time said, well, "What's our limitation?" I said, "Well, we don't really have any limitations. It's uh, we're, we're not we're not a kind of commercial airline anyway." Uh, so they said, "Well, in that case, um, you're number one to land runway two five." Gave me the weather and the wind again, and it was blustery. You know, it was going to be a big crosswind. So they said you were number one. Well, I'm five miles out, and they said uh, right-hand orbit, November one six two. I said I thought I was number one. He said you are, but we're just preparing the fire engines. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great! Uh, my girlfriend loved that. Yeah, yeah, she did. Well, she saw it all because we were flying out of her window because we were coming in sideways. Oh, right, yeah, like a crap. Anyway, we got landed and everything else. And the guys from the fire station came up to me on the grid that year at the TT and going, "We love you because it gives the only chance we get to come out." <laughs> when you're coming in sideways. Mm, yeah. Then. So, so you mentioned earlier on there a book and you've got a book out at the moment and chat a bit about what is that your life's, life's kind of interesting stories that you've got? Yeah, it is. It's got very little to do with racing. Um, I'm sick to death of reading books and probably because I sort of know most of the stories because I've been involved with it of, you know, finished third here, went on to the next Grand Prix or did yeah. that and then this happened and then went to that race and I would have won, but my brakes fade. Mine's all about the stories, really. It's mainly about all the in-between the races and the things that have happened and gone on and daft stuff that went on, really. Yeah, it is my life, life story um, about the jinks and pranks and daft things that, that happened when, when you could – you could have fun, I guess, you know, before yeah. racing got so that you've got to see the dietitian on a Wednesday and the yeah. psychiatrist on a Tuesday, you go to the gym Monday, uh, you know, it's a seven-day-a-week job now and you're not allowed to do anything outside of that little world and bubble that you live in. So my days were when you could do daft things and get away with it and no one really cared. Do you think if you, you know, if you were 19 today, do you think you'd, you'd – I use the word make it to that level, or do you not think because of the way it's set now and the way? I, I think if I was 19 today, I'd have had all the fun sucked out of me at school and college. Yeah, like everyone okay. else. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't mean any harm to anyone. If I was going to be good enough to go Grand Prix racing at 19, I would have had to have been in an academy when I was eight, wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. You know, what I'm saying is, that, and that's sport, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And unless you've been in some sort of academy when you're under 10 years old, you're not going to make it. And then you've got to have done a race when you're 11 and sort of professional by 15 or something like that. So, you know, kids nowadays, they don't have chance to have any character because they have it sucked out of them. You know, they're with their mum and dad or with a tutor or something all day long. Um, And, you know, they're fed a special diet from the age of 12. So they never get, unfortunately, a shag behind the bus shelter at school, do they? That doesn't happen. Yeah. I think uh, we we chat to someone and they talk about those academies. I think we're talking cycling terms at the time, but they say typically people going through those academies, on average, it's like a 14-year lifespan. So, yeah, you join academy at, you know, 10, 11, then by mid mid to late 20s, uh, the end of that that career, really. And not yeah. appreciate they may they may go on, but if you think about doing something for that long, uh, it's, a lo- it's a long time to be regimented. 
Uh, yeah, it is. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. If I had a chance and if I was a kid now, I'd, I'd be doing it the same as the other one. I'd want to be Mark Marquez and, and that's the way it is. But, you know, I get a little bit fed up with saying, oh, when's the next character coming along? How can you make a character out of someone that is a homogenized being? Because that's yeah. really what they are. They have to be. They really do. And so if you weren't that homogenized being that does everything as is told by the psychiatrist and the dietitian and the trainer and the this and the that, you're not going to make it to that high level. So, you know, there isn't going to be another character out there. There just yeah. can't be. I don't see uh, unless they come to the Steve Parish school, I could have an inverted school actually. To <laughs> the opposite. Them. Yeah, teach yeah. them around. Could you imagine many parents sending the kids to uh, Plummet Airways, uh, Plummet Nurseries? Yeah, I don't think it'd happen, would it? No. no. <laughs> so you know that—that's—that's that's the end of characters in sport. I'm afraid it really yeah. is. Um, yeah. uh, you know that—that that is every sport. Probably, I don't know. Maybe darts might get around it. I don't know. But most of them have to be that kind of home. Yeah, it's recommended, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, so just on the book side, obviously it's been all good, and I'm sure many shit bookshops as well. Uh, you, have you got an audio version of it or is it just hardback software? Yeah, no, there is an audio version, which okay. is the hardest thing I've ever done. I had to sit in a studio for three days reading my own book. Yeah, uh, right. Some bloke telling me I'm not reading it right. So, yeah. <laughs> so yes, there is an audio book and it's called The Parish Times. Okay. It's on, you can get it from Amazon or if you want signed books, you go to com and you get it personalized and sent out to you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so, interestingly, on the audiobooks, I, I, I listen to other podcasts where they chat to people with books out. Did you feel it was important that you read it rather than getting someone else to read it? Yeah, I wanted to. I, I felt that if it's my book, I should be reading it. And it just sounds mm. the reason I did is because I uh, there was a book that I got involved with with a guy called Nick Harris on Barry Sheen. It was a sort of definitive Barry Sheen book. Again, not necessarily about all his results. There's been. 10 of Barry Sheen books written and they're all in you know, the same old shite as far as I'm concerned. Um, but um, this one was sort of inside the man behind the scenes and what went on. I did it with Nick Harris, but they got a professional book reader to, to read it and I listened to it and it just sounded weird. It just didn't yeah. seem right. So I decided to do my own. Yeah, no, I, I, in the audio books I listen to, you know, I listen to autobiographies and when the, uh, I, I, like as just an example, I listened to uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger book and he narrated it, but when you actually, that's when you buy it, but then when you, uh, when you listen to it, he only does the first chapter, so it's, it's great. You hear, you know, his accent's so familiar, and then, yeah. then it goes to someone else who does yeah. all the other chapters, and it's, yeah. well, it's a great, you know, I find it a good book. Hmm. The experience isn't quite what you'd hoped it would. No, 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 no. And I'm sure a professional reader could possibly could have read my book better than I did it, but I still felt that it wasn't right, I think, yeah. um, a lot of people that have bought my book would have heard me doing poetry yeah. work with us, would know my voice and seem yeah. seem wrong not to. But as I say, it's quite 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 an awkward, strange thing to be doing is to sit in there reading your own book with the right punctuation at the right time and the right uh, you know way to read it was was something else again, a bit of an education which I sort of nearly enjoyed. Yeah, right. punishing enjoyment. <laughs> I've just got a couple of more qu questions. Our side, that's all right. Uh, so I understand you. Uh, sometimes act as or have acted as an expert witness in accidents. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I've been working on a case today. I do quite a lot of that nowadays. Um, yeah, motor racing accidents. I've been working for the coroner in Australia on a case out there. So, yes, I do. I do a fair bit of that. And, again, I think I'm reasonably qualified for that. I was sort of did engineering work, race motorcycles, race trucks, race cars, run teams, been you know been involved in the sport for 50 years probably. So, yeah, yeah, yeah very much uh, I do that. 
appreciate obviously it's, it's added value in that situation it's a i mean it seems quite I, I wouldn't say morbid but obviously it's not a great thing to be involved with so it's in many ways quite an easy thing to go swerve it and go well i don't i don't want to don't want to get involved because people have been injured or whatever what what makes you want to do it um a, a good, good answer good question actually uh, somebody sued me i had a rider um right. back in the days when i was running a team uh, had a go at suing me, um, and I fought the case tooth and nail with solicitors in Birmingham and had the ACU involved, and they thought I did a bit like my team management. Uh, I went into it in such detail. Um, they felt I'd be very good at working on other cases. And I actually, yeah, you're right, it's a bit morbid at times because you don't want to be involved in accidents, but I think I'm capable of putting across in layman's term to a judge and to counsel and solicitors I have no idea what motorcycle racing is about. You have to try and put it in horse racing terms for them to understand it. Um, and putting across what's actually happened. And my job is simply to look at an accident and work mm. out how it has happened, uh, you know, who, if there is any blame. But I, I'm, I, it's the judge and jury that to blame people. My job is to just put it into terms of the, the facts of what's happened and how it's happened. It, it must blend slight, I suppose, you talked about commentary earlier and that that need at times to simplify things for, for, for layman. Yeah. yeah, sure, very much so. There's, you know, I, I, sometimes you listen to someone trying to explain things and you know less when they finish, don't you? And I think the answer is, in whether it be for a, um, a judge or for people at home listening to what's going on. And it's slightly different depending on who you're commentating to. And, uh, and I've said this before, if you work for BT now and you're commentating on a Grand Prix, you are talking to at least 90% of your audience will be biking people or motor racing people. You start talking to 2 million BBC viewers and well, you know how many bikers are out there. I'd say 90% aren't bikers mm. yeah. um, just because of the numbers that you're out there. So it's a completely different commentary. It yeah, really, yeah. And that used to piss off the bikers. Sometimes when you'd, you'd say something very simple, um, and I really couldn't give a shit if they knew what I was saying. I wanted the other, I wanted the ninety percent people that didn't know what was going on, and someone short shifting the gears. You know, what, what's that mean if you didn't know what motorbike racing? It means changing gear, you know, earlier than the maximum revs, and so you're using the torque and things like that. And you get these knobheads going, "Oh, well, we know all that." I don't give a shit if you knew that. I want the people that are not bikers to come and watch motorbike racing and be interested in it. Yeah. So it's a different commentary when you're working free to air and you're working for a pay channel. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Mm. The, uh, and you certainly, whether you still do and whether you know, hold a Guinness World Record. Yeah, um, that's right. Reversing a caterham. And that was another weird thing. I raced caterhams for a few seasons whilst racing trucks. Um, BP were my main sponsors, big sponsor, actually. Um, and they uh, supported my truck racing, which there was only one race in the UK for the European Championship. So they felt they... Uh, they wanted a bit more of me doing stuff in the UK, so they went out and bought a two-litre caterham, and I did probably out of the 10 rounds in a year, I'd do six of them because of the clash of dates. Um, and they asked if I'd be interested in setting a world record in reversing. So I did. They had a, a caterham built with a motorbike engine. I think it had a Suzuki Hayabusa engine in it, and um, motorcycles don't have reverse gears, so they had to put a transfer gearbox in that, in theory, when you put the transfer gearbox across to reverse the engine gearbox sprocket, um, it's stuck in first gear, so you could only use first gear, so you didn't go too fast, but they took that lock off, so it had six reverse gears. <laughs> I went to Brandingthorpe and went about 110 miles an hour backwards using my mirrors. Good Jesus. job I was a lorry driver, wasn't it? 
<laughs> I know, I know. Well, without trying to say how dangerous going backwards in a car that speed was, but doing it that way was was there an element of quite a lot of risk in that? In that? Well, I, I don't know because I'd never done it before. Um, it was another one of these sort of things. Where I can't be. I worked it out, and my logic uh, was that if it all went wrong, what was going to happen? I was going to spin and end up going forwards. <laughs> I, I didn't think it's that bad. And it's pretty difficult to turn a caterham over. I mean, a lot of people did think it was a bit daft. And it was harder than I first expected because with a car, you have um, the geometry in a car when, you, you know, you'll know when you go in a corner and let go of the steering wheel, it sort of straightens itself up. It has a, an Ackerman system and a, ge- a geography. Uh, the, 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 the design of the suspension system is designed so that it centralizes itself. Well, of course, going backwards, it's completely opposite. So all it wants to do is rip the steering wheel out of your hand and make it go on full lock because it's completely the wrong way around. So I had to brace myself and have some special places where I could lock my arms in on the side door and everything else. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it all worked and I didn't die. So, yeah, another, another trick that worked. Did you, what did you get off Guinness? Did they send you a certificate or...? Yeah, you do. You get a little badge, um, which I've got in my gym somewhere, along with my You Bet badges, where I did about three different You Bet programs that you had to do these daft things. And one was driving around Mallory Park blindfolded with someone telling me which way to steer. And um, I even took off in my aeroplane and landed and did a circuit with someone telling me how to fly it blindfolded and all those stuff. Mm. Hey, that was a TV program. Was yeah, you bet. It was quite a big TV program. Yeah. Matthew yeah. Kelly. Matthew Kelly That's was right. the yeah. host. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. A, a couple of things. So when you look at fan, like when you kind of take chunks of your life and look at bikes, trucks, commentary, do you find when you meet fans that they perhaps sometimes don't know you for this because they're very, yeah. you know perhaps younger people only know you for commentary, even or, or some never knew you even did truck racing. Yeah, yeah, but lots, lots of times it comes across where. Um, you know, the older person would have watched me race motorbikes and mid-person perhaps watching trucks used to watch you all the time. Oh, you drove the BP Mercedes, did you? Yeah, yeah. And then others, as you say, um, just a commentary. Oh, well, I know that voice from somewhere. Where do I know that from? And I get loads of that. And wherever you might be, it could be out. I spend a lot of time in Mallorca and where do I know that voice from? It's really, really weird. So, yeah. Um, and then the weirdest one, and it makes me giggle all the time, the guy that owns Crystal Palace Football Club is called Steve Parrish. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I get, I get, I've had, I've even had a BBC crew turn up here to interview me about sacking the manager once. <laughs> I get emails, people complaining about their seats, and I tell them they can use the director's box this weekend. You <laughs> so, must get really pissed off. I, I actually haven't met Stephen, but I kind of we know each other because he does a bit of car racing. Yeah, all right, okay. And he's he, one S, is he in Parish? Is that he's right? A, he's a single R. Yeah, yeah. He's a single R. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm so surprised it, when the BBC didn't turn up. You just went out. And impersonated him and gave him a I should have done. I should have done actually. Really, that would have been quite funny. But it's not uncommon to get calls even nowadays. Of, can we come and talk to you? And I now explain to them that I am not that same person. <laughs> but when he was racing a Porsche, he was always finishing about fifteenth. And I'd get these emails go, "Bloody, you've lost it, Parish. You're not <laughs> <ready for that." laughs> You're shy. <laughs> Wrong one. Yeah. The uh, just out of interest, like through through looking at I suppose bikes particularly. Uh, looking at all the other, other riders during the career, if you had a style that you, which you were very successful, but a style that, that you kind of looked at and wished, oh, I wish I was like that. If you, any rider anywhere, road or, or track, what would that be? Who would that be? 
Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, my star probably was Barry Sheen because he was yeah. the guy that I, I raced with and watched and looked at. Um, and and he was he was so good to me. He was the person that really did help me a great deal in my early days and was such a good mate. Um, he was... When when Barry was around, he was like the Google before it even happened. He had a black book that knew everybody and everything, you know, if I needed to do anything or whatever. Um, but over the years, I don't think you can transgress that's sort of people that have done great things. I commonly ask who's the best ever rider. Well, you can't say that because at the time, Kenny Roberts was great in the sort of late 70s and then Freddie Spencer was good in the 80s and so on and so on and Valentino yeah. Rossi, then Marquez. Um no, I, I think I've always warmed to people that, again, have got character, I guess yeah. you'd say. And so Rossi was always probably the last of the people that seemed to have a little bit about him, quite possibly, because I knew him as a little kid. I used to tell him to clear off out of the way when he was on his little bicycle when he's, I was racing against his dad, Graziano. Okay. Graziano and I would race a lot in the sort of late 70s. Yeah. And Valentino would be the little kid on the push bike bombing around getting in everyone's way. Yeah. yeah, that's a kind of why I ask because I, I guess that's a question you often ask is best rider ever. But like you say, and through all sports, they evolved so much over over many years that the, the, the comparison. Yeah. Yeah, to, I don't it's nice to have a discussion, but it's kind yeah, of it is. but you know, I mean, who's to say that Jeff Duke wasn't the best? Who's to yeah. say Mark Howard wasn't? Who Agostini? I, I just think all you can ever say is best at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I if I had to say one person that probably I felt had incredible talent and probably because of his personality it wasn't seen that much was Casey Stoner I've stood on the side of tracks marveling at what what that man did but he just was an angry young fella that time sort of walked away from it too early Um, but I still think Casey Stoner was one of the most spectacular people I've ever watched anyway And then just finally to cover off, I suppose, because we're uh, all affiliated to Isle of Man, I think, or I read, I didn't really read the article, but recently they've talked about doing road racing in Isle of Wight, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have been talking about doing racing in the Isle of Wight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still not sure if it'll happen. There's been talk of having a TT in Wales, wasn't there? Yeah, Um, There's all these things. I don't think people quite understand the logistics of it and the people, the problems with the neighbours, and there's going to be at least 50% of the people won't want it and they'll rear up about it. And then someone will say, we haven't got enough hospitals here. And then, you know, it sounds rather pessimistic of me, but there'll be a lot more to it than just saying, oh, we're going to have a road race here. Uh, let's get it going. So uh, I'd love to see it happen and it would be wonderful. And um, uh, But I don't know. I don't really think the TT would ever happen if someone said, let's have a TT now. It's just because it's happened for the last 110 years. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's like road racing? That, do you think that is a dying art and that will eventually go? I think you have to just because of the blameless world we're living in now. We're all, you know snowflakes the, no one will take any risks do they you know uh, so yeah i think unfortunately that it will eventually someone will go we can't have this we just cannot have people riding around 220 horsepower motorbikes doing 200 miles an hour where they can hit solid objects and I'm, i really hope that doesn't happen in my lifetime but i just see it coming to an end because people won't sustain that type of you know danger yeah you know? I, but more, I mean more recently you've seen I don't know, because I, I think as you use you know, probably the right word, the snowflake world we're moving into. But then the, the, see, you look at like UFC as, a, as an event, which is very brutal, and that's getting more and more popular. But I think because people are seeking, because everything's got a little bit softer, they're looking for something more edgy. Uh, <laughs> and may, maybe the, the, the whole thing will come full circle and we'll, we'll come back to appreciating uh, the dangers. Maybe. Of life. 
Yeah, maybe, but you're not allowed to die now, are you? No, that, that's that's the thing. We really, you know, no one wants it, and there's so much litigation going on now. There's you wait the litigation, and I get involved with a bit of it with motorcycle and car racing. But you wait until people that have died from COVID, they'll be suing everyone left, right, and centre. Yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us. I, you know, really appreciate it, appreciate it. And it's a good chat to sort of reminisce about the past as well. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, it's always nice to talk about the past. That's all us old boys can do nowadays, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm so desperately keen to get back to the life that I loved doing things. I've had a real steady year with not so much going on. Uh, I'm in the entertainment world. It's usually, you know, theater, I do theatre shows and stuff like that. They've all got, got swallowed up in COVID. So, yeah, let's hope to God this vaccine works. I'm going to have one on Friday. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be a lab rat for a new vaccine company. Uh, Okay. She might have a third arm next week or something. Yeah, could easily. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I might, I might be talking like, um, like a lady next week. We'll wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're saying it's a vaccine when it's really just a sex change you're going for, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That'll do. <laughs> Good man. Do you want to check us out, Matt? Yeah. So wherever you're listening today, please like, share, subscribe, and leave those five star reviews. Please, please. Social media, Facebook with the M Word Podcast, Twitter we're M Word Podcast number one, and on Instagram we are the M Word IOM. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's uh, our checkout for Christmas, so have a good Christmas and New Year, and we'll speak to you in the New Year. Yeah, and if you want any um, books or anything, steveparishracing.com. That's a perfect Christmas present. All right, take care, everyone. Merry Christmas. Scream.